Hey everybody, welcome back to the Punk Till I Die podcast. We are at retirement age, Neil. We are at number 65. Yeah, I'm getting close, buddy. Let me tell you. Yeah, all are. We all are. <laughs> but actually, we're going to dispense with most of the nonsense today. Nonsense? Well, actually, that's true. We're going to have lots of nonsense, but we're going to dispense with most of the pregame nonsense. Um, of course, you can reach out to us at Punk Till I Die podcast on Facebook or Punk Till I Die 77 on Gmail. Yep. Uh, but we have a very special guest with us tonight. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Frank Portman. Dr. Frank from the Mr. T Experience. How are you doing, Dr. Frank? Just fine. Yeah, so, thanks for coming yeah. on. Thanks for joining yeah, us, no man. No problem. So the question Neil had, and I didn't have an answer for it right off the bat, was, is he really a doctor? And I said, I don't think so. But And I'm sure you've answered this a thousand times, but where did the Dr. Frank nickname come from? Uh, you know, it was... Uh, I've had lots. I've, I've had lots of joke answers about this question over the years because okay. disinformation is fun. And I used to tell people that I was not a doctor, but I was a dentist, <laughs> and wow. uh, which is that's pretty funny. But then that backfired later when I started getting uh, punk rock people calling me up trying to schedule <laughs> dental appointments. Amazing. But I think one <laughs> at one point I had I had claimed in some fanzine. Uh, in uh in europe i don't know if it was british or if it was uh german or something that my i was a alternative punk dentist so i used to i would set up a dentist chair on the stage in between bands at gilman and uh i thought i felt that that was obvious that that i was kidding around but then there was there was a a one time when uh, some german guy showed up at Gilman very angry that there was not free dental uh, <laughs> care. Yeah, the Germans and, are very literal. Uh, yes, for sure. Yes. Might have got yeah. lost in translation, so, huh? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's a nickname. It was I was called that as a child, as an insult, uh, sort of semi-serious like, insult. You were a scholar, Dr. Frankenstein. Child. Oh, oh, no, no, you know, it's like it just oh, very, not right, even right, right. not even as as pointed as that. Just ooh, Dr. Frankenstein. Uh, what, it, you know, uh, and especially when Mel Brooks, the Mel Brooks movie, Young Frankenstein came out, then that was a thing. Dr. Frankenstein, everybody uh, would always say that at me. And then uh, when I was a started uh, doing being a DJ at college radio station, I used that as the air name because. Uh, that's a thing that DJs often call themselves doctor for a reason that I can't completely understand. Mm. But uh, I don't know. There were a lot of doctor DJs on the radio when I was growing up. So that was just a slightly ironic uh, kind of appropriation of that. And then the band sort of started going around the time uh, when I was doing the DJ stuff. So that had become my punk name by that point. Mm. So not a real doctor, but... Uh, you know, but you play if one you on the call stage. yourself a doctor, if you you pretty much actually are one, really. Mm. I think that probably goes back to wasn't it um, show in the seventies WKRP in Cincinnati? Wasn't one of the DJs on that called Doctor Something? Yeah, it, I but I don't. That's a that is based on a more general tradition. I don't know. I I think the one one thing that they uh, a lot people are sometimes called doctors because they're drug dealers. Oh, and. Maybe it's maybe that's that maybe a lot of DJs were drug dealers in the 50s uh, <laughs> or something. I don't really know. I, they, some people say it's spin doctors because you're spinning records, but uh. I'm not sure what came first, the chicken or the egg there. Um, all I know is, you know, I grew up with 
Dr. Don Rose on KFRC uh, in uh, in San Francisco is a top 40 radio station. Then there was Dr. Demento, also oh, yeah. a very important DJ. Yep. And so I was just I just became Dr. Frank to join the, uh, the to join that club. And those guys were probably all like eighth grade dropouts. I mean, at least you went to college, right? <laughs> Yeah, I I couldn't I couldn't tell you about that, but yes, I did, I did go to college. Are you are you uh, you went to college at Berkeley? Mm-hmm. Did, did you grow? Are you a California guy? You always live in California. Yeah, yeah. So you were obviously San Francisco native. Oh, you were San Fran native. Okay. So you so going back to your real early days, you Neil, you brought up something kind of interesting. I did. I wanted to ask about this because it's super interesting to me. So, in the band you were in previous to Mr. T Experience, when you were just in high school, was it called Bent Nails or something? Yeah. Yeah. And so you were on that famous um, compilation album, Not So Quiet on the Western Front. And right. um, how did that feel to be on that? Because man, there was some there were some heavyweights on that, right? The Dead Kennedys were on that. MDC, uh, Seven Seconds. I think Code of Honor, one of my favorites, were on there. Yeah, it was weird. Uh, you know, when the the way it happened was uh, we were uh, it was <clears throat> it was not a real band. It was you know uh, just you know me and a uh, uh, and three other guys just fooling around. Uh, you know, in that sort of fantasy rock band way that you that that people have, but we were you know, interested in punk rock and we're listening to maximum rock and roll, the radio, uh, program. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we just, we just recorded some songs from one of our practices on a cassette on a boom box and sent it to him because that's what people did. And, uh, that guy, a couple years later, uh, we were contacted because they were making this compilation and, uh, you know, wanted to use one of the songs and it was all very mystifying. And, you know, we were kids, we didn't know what was going on, but I don't even know if there was a, if there was even the semblance of a actual band at that point when the, uh, when this record came out, but it did came out in first appearance on record. Uh, and, uh, just the whole thing was, was, was funny, but the, 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 the thing that you're saying about how there are all these heavy hitters on it, um, at that time, they weren't heavy hitters to me. Uh, I did know about Flipper, and I did like Flipper. Uh, the rest of it was just not my kind of thing. And, you know, the the uh, sort of music that was played on Maximum Rock and Roll when I liked it when I was a younger teenager, and we're talking about the, the late 70s, um, versus the hardcore direction that it took almost immediately thereafter and was sort of symbolized by that record was just not something I ever uh enjoyed particularly so i i was kind of a you know odd man out on that uh in that regard well that's kind of a drag because i I was going to ask you if you had any tales about code of honor because they were from san fran i believe and they were one of my favorite bands from back then but yeah i had that record i i don't i never uh you know i the, the the all those guy the those bands were you know all, like a previous it's only it only takes a couple of years for them to be too old for you know their previous generation of uh mm, and i yeah. did they weren't it wasn't like i you know hung around them i, I got, did get to know later on some of these people i'm you know i, I know uh uh kevin seconds pretty well now mm-hmm. but you know not not then um you know i liked i what did i i'm trying to i like flipper i like fang 
Uh, but not Dead Kennedys. Not a big Dead um, Kennedys guy. I mean, you know, I was very, I was, I was a, I was, I was a, a fan of the Dead Kennedys as a kid in the Doctor Demento uh, mode when I thought that they were kidding. <laughs> and then when I realized that they were deadly serious, I started to, uh, that freaked me out a little bit, uh, honestly. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and also, I, I, they're, they're, I appreciate the existence of, of, the, of that sound where they were, you know, trying to push the, uh, I'm not talking about the dead Kennedys particular, but just the whole thing. We're making it sound as harsh and as, unpleasant as possible and sort of trying to confront you with the mm-hmm. nasty truths of the street um, and so forth. I get it, but I always was and still am. I'm, I'm not going to put on an MDC record for fun. If I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to put on, I, I don't uh, know who the does tell the truth. <laughs> or the buzzcocks or <laughs> yeah. whatever, you know, yeah. uh, even though I'm glad those guys were doing it and I'm sure they had some very important critiques of society and stuff, but uh, that wasn't what, personally moved me uh, as far as uh music went i was much more yeah you know i'd like i i i liked the buzzcocks and the undertones and i was the gonna say the undertones yeah that sort of that yeah. sort of Ramones. thing don't skip their moments don't skip their moments yeah. yeah so when you put see when you were putting mr t experience together this was mid 80s right you were yeah. one of the one of the first one of the earlier of what would become the big pop punk movement of the 90s so you had a clear vision of what you want to do at that time. You weren't trying to do a hardcore band. You 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 planned it to be sort of what would become pop punk as it is. Uh, so sort of, but I, we weren't. I would say you know we were in a very general way, yes. But in a in a more particularized way, we didn't know what we were doing, and we were just doing the best we could with mm. what limited stuff we had, and it kind of turned out the way it did in a. This sort of uh, in a way that was not uh, not overdetermined. Um, part of the uh, you know part of it honestly was steered by the hostility of the scene. Uh, you know where uh, you know I, we're, I was we as a band and and I personally was kind of alienated by that. What was the the what characterized the punk scene at that time. And my uh, impulse there was sort of to, you know, to uh, provoke the confrontation, which was, you know, really funny because all these, you know, guys are trying to be all tough guys and everything. And they were angered so much by, uh, by love songs and, you know, songs that weren't about Reagan or whatever the (laughs) songs were supposed to be about. Um, And so, you know, we got a lot of energy from that, uh, from that hostility and that confrontation. And then we would, you know, we sort of formed our own little world where, uh, we were, you know, playing the kinds of songs we played, which were, you know, an attempt to do, uh, uh, the kind of punk rock where you're playing pop songs in a basic way. The American buzzcocks, basically. They're, they're song based. It's a song based thing. Now the, the caveat on that or the addendum on that is that we weren't that good at it. <laughs> we didn't so it's pretty rough around the edges. Yeah. yeah, we didn't know what we were doing. So the the ideal version of it would have been great, but it took us many years of very embarrassing, <laughs> painful stumbling around before we got it together. And it should have, you know, uh, 
I, I always look back on those times thinking if I, you know, if we had just, or say if I had just tried a little harder, uh, it could have been much better, but I didn't. And we were just this sort of slapdash thing. And we were, you know, we just uh, were uh, doing the best we could in a, in not a very hospitable situation. But like I said, that, that kind of that negative energy sort of fueled a lot of the, uh, it was the impetus for, for a lot of the things we did. And, uh, you know, not, not all, it was, uh, not, it was not all to the, to the bad for that. You know, it, it, it produced some, uh, some momentum, which was good. Well, some, it's it's, it's kind of funny, you know, cause like you're, you're kicking against what was like the real political hardcore stuff and like fighting with melody. It's like, I'm not going to get more aggressive. I'm going to get more melody. It's just kind of, it's kind of a funny thought, you know, the rest of those bands were trying to out aggro each other. Well, yeah. Right. And you're like, I'm going to write a traditional pop song. Yeah. But that's f- exactly right. Funny thing is compared to today, some of those bands you were talking about, like, you know, seven seconds or whatever, they're actually melodic compared to some of the bands today. Oh, yeah. Of definitely. how aggressive some of that shit's going. Right. Yeah, Kevin seconds could write a melody. No yeah, question. Yeah. Definitely. I'm seven, seven seconds had, uh, had some, had some great songs and, and, Kevin's a great writer and a great singer. I have nothing bad to say about him. Um, and there, it's not like there weren't, I'm not like I'm saying there, were, yeah. uh, there weren't any, there wasn't any value in that thing. It was just this, 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 uh, the element that I didn't like was the non-musical, you know, it was like the, there, there wasn't any rock and roll to it. There wasn't too much melody to it. And all the songs were the same damn thing. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like, I'm not like I'm saying that we were all that much better. All our songs were kind of about the same damn thing too, but, um, the thing that I like about rock and roll was not there with a lot of this hardcore. It just wasn't. I mean, it's yeah. they were they were you know it was it was more aggressive. It was I think of you know uh, sometimes to the point of ridiculousness, uh, trying to. Um, I mean, it's it's all show business, but you have this uh, this tough guy act um, that uh, you know I that is sort of often would veer pretty close to self parody, um, but oh, especially you know, later, yeah. And, and but then you know it, the, the proof of it is if the music is good and it, and yeah. if and whether your subjective judgment as to what's good or not mine was I liked the rock and roll I liked the well written songs I liked the verses and the choruses and the bridges and uh, that was you know that was my, that was my my main line uh, I was kind of an old fashioned guy even back then and it didn't matter at all it, my opinion of it was uh not important but when i started trying to make my own band and write my own songs the kind of stuff i was trying to grope grope toward was not that and everybody knew it and so nobody liked us so it was a very <laughs> it was a very hostile unwelcoming uh unpleasant scene to try to step into well, what, why don't we play? Why don't we play chronologically of the songs you picked? Which is the first? Let's let's listen to one where you're still groping a little bit. Yeah, so I said it's an interesting, interesting choice of interesting choice of words in 2020, but we'll accept it. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I mentioned Danny Partridge. That was uh, uh, you know one of the one of our early songs. It's the one that uh, that got some attention because it was kind of a novelty song. It was topical because. It was about a, an actual situation. You know, the kid who played Danny Partridge, Danny Bonaduce was busted for drugs. And so yeah. it was, uh, um, and I was, I think, you know, I, I was trying to, to join 
that uh, the tradition of, I mean, I think the probably the the palimpsest of that kind of song was the diodes child star about Buffy from family affair who had a drug overdose. Mm. And I don't know if you're aware of that song. It's a great song, great album, great band. Uh, they're Canadian punk rock band. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't know if you guys were aware of the, uh, of that television show, but yep. guys, my, people, my age grew up with it. Yep. It was, uh, you know, family affair. Uncle Bill is too, uh, he, uh, children and uh buffy and jody and their yep. Twi their yeah, like butler yep. uh mr french so the diode song called child star with uncle bill uncle bill i took some pills mr french mr french I'm... so um the idea that you would that you would take something like that and in this kind of uh ironic jaded kind of way turn it into a song i always thought was really really cool um you know uh that that kind of approach that kind of wacky approach to recycling popular culture and making it into a uh to a thing uh i you know i associate it with other bands like the dickies and things like that so this is a clumsy way of trying to join what i thought of as a kind of cool tradition in um in, in punk rock and you know it as inept as it is it put us on the map sort of you know in college radio anyway and uh, so it was an important first song Cool. So which which LP is this from then? It's uh, the first self-released record. Oh, everybody's, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we have so uh, is... Mr. Yep, T Experience ahead, with Danny Partridge. Danny Bonaducci is talking about what it's like on both sides of stardom. He recently spent some time in county jail after being convicted for possession of cocaine. When I started to grow up, when I didn't have the kid's face anymore, and people didn't stop me every day on the street and ask me for my autograph, and I really had to get by on my own, on my own abilities, that, that was tough. I just read the news in the paper yesterday Danny Bonaduce just got busted in L.A. He used to be 10 years old, now he's 25. Busted for narcotics, and he's facing 10 to life. Danny Bonaduce busted, that was just the other day. Danny Bonaduce busted, now they're gonna lock him away. We'll never see his freckled face. Smiling anymore They're gonna put him in a cell And double lock the door Show and keep that room And wonder where you are Next time you see Danny They'll be safely behind bars Danny Fox is busted Happened just the other day Danny Fox is busted Now they're gonna lock him away And he got busted Never happened to me he got busted Oh, poor Danny Little Danny Partridge Wasn't as innocent as he seemed He finally found an outlet For his money-making schemes I just can't believe it Kid that we grew up 
So there, Danny Partridge by the Mr. T Experience. Yeah, it's a so, funny song. It's got that uh, quote from him at the beginning, right? When he's talking about, right. yeah. Yeah, that was our, our, our friend Last Will, another uh, DJ who was a media junkie and archivist and had just had, me had uh, just routinely had uh, several TVs with VCRs recording everything that happened so that he could use them later in on the air and in sound collages and everything. And we just, uh, you know, uh, approached him. So we got this song about Danny Partridge. What can you, what can you give us? And he was able to produce that very right. easily. We used it on the record when we remastered it for the compilation, uh, MTX forever, which came out earlier this year. Yep. Um, that's like a sort of a greatest hits compilation yep. kind of thing. Uh, we were we had mastered it with that intro, and the pressing plant refused to do it for uh, unless we were able to produce a, a license. So we had, oh, to have, yeah. we had to redo it without the uh, the actuality because it, it was from a local news broadcast. There wasn't even any way to contact anyone to get any kind of permission. But you know, I uh, back I get it. They don't want to be sued. Um, sure. And they just have a blanket policy against, I think it's clearly fair use, but you don't, you can't argue with them. They're not a court. So, uh, but in those days, you just did stuff like that without even thinking sure. about it and nobody cared and they would be pressed. And I, it was that that's the reason it surprised me so much when they came back uh, with the refusal. So we had to, we had to redo that, that did, disc because of that. Did you ever get any blowback from him? Because from what I hear, he's kind of a douchebag. And, uh, no, it, uh, on the contrary, um, uh, never any blowback. And in fact, uh, I have heard from, he's a DJ as well, or he was, and I've heard from a couple of people that he used to play that song on his, as an intro ah. to his show. Oh, that's show. cool. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I've never talked to him, but uh, I, actually my impression of, I don't know if he's a douchebag or not, but my impression of him is he uh, has a sense of humor about himself, which... Hmm one would hope if you're Danny Bonaduce that you would have. And, uh, he, and so, uh, it didn't, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I don't know if I ever met him in person, if he, you know, try to punch me in the mouth or something, but I, <laughs> Roy I don't rage on you. think so. Well, that was the, it's, that was the thing. I think at Chicago radio, I think he actually had the name Danny, Danny Bonadouchebag. Um, cause uh, I think, I think he tried to have a, he offered someone to have a fight or something like that. Cause they were uh, making fun of yeah, him or something. I, yeah. I think, and he was, he's, he's had some, I guess he's, I don't know a whole lot about his, uh, the ins and outs of his, uh, personal story, but I think he's had some ups and downs yeah. and some <laughs> issues with various things. All. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. Uh, I do, I do, I do believe that it's, I've heard it from enough different people in the Chicago area that. Uh, that that song used to be played uh, occasionally by him. So uh, God bless him. So, so you were you were talking about you know you you have a song famously 924 Gilman and you 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 know you always you always be associated with that place. Do I take it you have a fairly uneasy even back in the day you had sort of an uneasy relationship with 924 Gilman? I don't know about it. An uneasy relationship is not the right way I describe it. I mean, I never, I didn't have the. I didn't idolize it like some people yeah. either did or claim to do now. It wasn't um, it wasn't this this glorious mecca of of joy and fulfillment. Um, this the final punk rock utopia where everything was suddenly all right <laughs> because we were with our brothers and we were all 
naked to the waist and with our arms around each other saying <laughs> unity, unity, unity. I was, that was never my scene. Um, it was for us as a band, it was just a place to play. And then the, when it was being, I was sort of distantly, uh, peripherally involved in it when it was being set up. And I found all of the, the, political community organizing aspect of it really hilarious and sort of uh d- kind of uh uh documented in the in the lyrics of the song yeah uh to a degree um hilarious but didn't didn't i didn't i wasn't angry about it no I just it, thought, the song know, is not mean-spirited hey, but it definitely pokes you know, you poke at them a little bit but it doesn't come across as mean. hey guys if, hey, hey guys can i interrupt a second so for some yeah. of our foreign listeners who might not know and actually i don't know that much myself can you explain what 94 uh, 924, 924 gilman was gilman. and why it well, was important? that's the address of 924 gilman street was where they this was this warehouse space that was uh that was you know, set up as a venue with maximum rock and roll funding eventually. And the, there was, it was a, uh, it was supposed, it was a, you know, a place for bands to play. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a collective. It, it was, very yeah, it was, driven. it was kind of, and you know, that was fully in line with, I mean, of course people in Berkeley are going to set up a venue. It's going to be a hippie commune. Right. That's the long tradition. It was very much a very, uh, I mean, it's every cliche about uh, about the, you know, hippie social organizations that you could imagine was embodied in this um, in this uh, in this organization. And, you know, that's the way it had to be. And it had there's good things and bad things about it, I'm sure. But at the time, I just thought it was really funny. And I didn't believe in it in that way that some people did or some people say they did it was just a place to play and there were not that many places to play and in fact it wasn't the greatest place to play uh it had a lot it was it was not um particularly they weren't particularly nice to the bands that was part of their kind of the communist ethos of it is no one's better than anyone else. So there would be this sort of abuse the bands kind so just of just because you draw doesn't mean you're going to get paid better than the local losers. Huh? Well, they would take almost all the money. You never got paid very much money oh, for these shows. It was just very, I mean, it was, the, it was a, you know, you, but you were supposed to, because you, you were, you know, part of the revolution, right? Uh, oh God! Eventually, the eventually the, the the government would be overthrown, and Timmy O'Hanlon would be the the, <laughs> the 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 dear leader, and then I don't know what the next stage towards utopia would be. But it's a small sacrifice uh, if you give up your 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 money. I don't know. It's it's not. Screw that. We had great shows there. We had some fun there. It was kind of, uh, you know, it wasn't the most. Uh, hospitable or pleasant place, but it was better than nothing. But with as with a lot of bands, as soon as there started to be other options, which for us we could, we you know, could play uh, clubs as well, and you know the other options often were better. You'd get sure. treated better as a band. So that was something that you could, um, if you didn't, if you didn't believe in the ethos, then uh, then you know you would kind of, you know, you'd sit there saying, well, I've been you have to i've been here you know all night there's too many bands it's going too late uh you're not going to get paid anything and no one's paying attention and it's just kind of really tedious plus you can't have a beer um and then just down the street there's a kind of cool club where 
all those things are not happening. Uh, so, <laughs> and you, you know, keep yeah. the door. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, it was, and I think a lot of, you know, as a, a lot of, a lot of bands were in that position. You just, you know, you did what you could. And it certainly was before that place there was, uh, was around, there was not a place to play. I mean, we used to have to, we used to do shows in, uh, you know, the pizza places and and you know set up our own shows and everything and when we would get into clubs it would often be kind of dodgy circumstances monday night 21 and up so you know there's uh just a not a not a a, a great environment for for bands to play so you know i i so anyway to, to answer your question i i didn't uh i have I was always a little bit off to the side of every scene I've ever been. I've always been a kind of a contrarian and I was a contrarian about that from the beginning. However, I will say that, uh, we did have some fun times there and I saw some great shows and I, you know, liked a lot of the people that, uh, that, uh, used to hang out there, but it was not like the fulfillment of all my fondest dreams about humanity <laughs> or whatever some people might, might say. I definitely think it's been lionized because it's it's been idealized. The nineties yeah. you know but it's still there, right? It's still there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's to nineties punk rockers what CBGB's was the seventies punk rockers. Oh, it's almost dear. like a Mecca. Well yeah. yeah, but yeah, but you go to CBGB's, you're gonna be disappointed. Yeah, I mean, but CBGB's cool, at least has a, a cool club and you can buy a beer. <laughs> not now. I think it's a no. Well, no, it's not now. Right, but I'm just yeah. saying, back then, at least it was a it was a real but, bar. I mean, but you know. a real it, was a re- it was a real club. And yeah. It didn't have the. It didn't have. It was you know like they weren't trying to save the world. They were just trying to put on shows. They were right? trying to not to try to pay the rent. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, but and you know, and I'm I'm sorry. I, I I have nothing against Green Day coming out of Berkeley, but you know they're not the Ramones, if we're being honest. So yeah, and the Dead Boys and television cbgb's was a disgusting place oh it was it was a horrible place yeah but it was uh, but every time i was in there i walked around in awe i was just all the best clubs are though yeah that's true (laughs) so so um well should we play that song does that make sense yeah Yeah, let's throw it in there it's a great song okay what what album is that off of uh so that would be on the uh the 12 inch uh record uh uh ep big black bugs blue blue blood Wow, um, say that fast five times. Going yeah, and it's also there's there's a there's a version of it on the 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 rarities compilation shards. So uh, that's a remastered version, um, okay. whichever one you wanna. Okay, wanna cool. Grab. Cool. Okay, so this is Gilman Street by uh, Mr. T Experience.
watches the door And James McKinney Sweeps the floor Isocracy Gilman Street. All you need to know. Right so you briefly touched on, <laughs> and like I said, it, it gently pokes fun at them, and I, I, I think it's, it's one of my favorites. So you briefly touched on Maximum Rock and Roll. Did you know, Tim, were you, I've, I've, I've struggled yeah. with my own relationship with Maximum Rock and Roll because I loved it so much when I was young, but when I got a little older, I resented them so much for their gatekeeping. So what kind of guy was Tim? You know, he, I, I did know him fairly well, and I spent uh, quite a bit of time talking to him, uh, in, you know, over the years. And, uh, he was, he was, he was really a, a good guy and he was a smart guy and he had a lot of, uh, uh, he had a really, uh, uh, amazing knowledge of rock and roll music, which you would never know from his, uh, from his maximum rock and roll persona. And yeah. I think my, he, like, he had a, uh, his the the real guy was a lot less strident than the persona, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I, about the the political stuff, he had a sense of humor. He uh, uh, he was, uh, I mean, I, it, it's a very he was almost like, you know, a split personality because his his he and I I analyze it as he really did believe that he was working for a revolution and that he thought that. You could organize the kids to overthrow the government and move into the <laughs> post-capitalist utopia, and so he had to keep pushing that with with no let up. And um, but if you talk to him in person, then that wasn't what he talked about. So uh, you know, uh, I didn't see eye to eye with him uh, on quite a few sort of seen politics things but it was it was never he was always a you know he was always uh friendly and personable and willing to talk to talk to you about anything uh but his view of what society should be like and the place of a of of punk rock and rock and roll and art within it um was a little bit skewed from my perspective for me the art is the important part but if you're if you're a person with a uh, with a kind of ideological mind the art is only valuable insofar as it's useful for furthering your goal 
So, you know, you, 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 if you can use it as propaganda, it's good. If not, it's either not of interest or it's actually harmful to your agenda. And I think that, uh, that there, so there was a little bit of that going on, but I had all, you know, the, the all sorts of really, he knew everything about a lot of the, the rock and roll music that I was really interested in when I was a young man, when I was talking to him, like glam rock with the sweet and, mm -hmm. uh, he knew everything there was to know about the Rolling Stones and, and, yeah. uh, it, which you would never know from the, from his, uh, but, uh, but he was a hippie, the, right? I mean, he was a hippie. Yeah, who, he was a, who basically took punk crack because he thought it could further his agenda, right? I mean, that was I, no, I, that was right. the impression no, I got. Huh. When when one time, one of my earlier, he used to work at, uh, <clears throat> he had a part time job at UC Berkeley on a loading dock at one of the departments. Um, it was a you know his that was his you know proletarian uh, contribution. <laughs> Blue collar uh, job. Yeah. And, yeah. So he would he had a, he would I would often run into him and we and on when i was a student on campus you know and we would see him and we'd go out and have lunch together and talk about things and every one time we were walking around berkeley and i had my little apartment uh in the berkeley area that was this weird building that kind of looked like it might have once been a motel it was this tiny one room uh boxes that were that were rented out that's where i lived and we walked by and said okay this is my apartment he's like oh you live in this place i hid out here uh during the 68 riots <laughs> and so he was just like oh, yeah i hit out, i hit out here for three days he was like in one of these little places um and uh you know that was so that was a uh, uh that was the the his previous incarnation i don't know if you've ever seen the picture of him with his you know hair down to his knees uh it's uh where when he was the full-on hippie um uh astounding but i that is i'm sure where the politics came from uh but in the pro in the process of that he was a record collector and he was a he he did really feel <laughs> feel the rock and roll and hmm. that was what that was what we that that was the 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 level uh on which we got along did, did maximum rock and roll embrace the mr t experience i don't remember no not really i mean not like we were looking for an embrace they covered us and I think tolerated us as a, you know, as a part of this scene, but definitely, uh, you know, we were, we were not the kind of thing that they liked promoting, you know, they were, they wasn't, uh, uh, I you weren't like doing a pogo punk revival thing, like, which was big in your era, that same era, they were doing a lot of doing the throwback yeah, punk I, rock I, thing. I mean, the, I, I you know, I don't know how you judge. We we would we had a we had supporters in you know in the scene, but also I don't think we were ever taken as very important. We were just kind of a you know uh, uh, and and I think we annoyed a lot of people. With, you know, partly by design, um, and partly just because I mean we were annoying. <laughs> uh but so i never felt like maximum rock and roll was was like going to bat for us or anything but you know they did uh you know include us in the scene reports and they would review our records and so forth which is i don't know how much more support than that you want do you guys are talking early 90s now right that was uh, probably the early nineties, yeah. Was yeah, the well, but, I mean, all the way back to I mean, maximum rock and roll was certainly around when we started. It was uh, uh, going through, and then 
And then, you know, Lookout was kind of on the outs with them, with that, with, with them after a while. And so we were definitely part of the Lookout that mm-hmm. was, sure. uh, that was disfavored. Um, but not, not, not in any official way, but just, you know, I, I, it's, I get it though. If you're, it's not what you're interested in. It's not what you're interested in. I never felt like I, like it was appropriate to demand somebody, uh, like, or approve of what, uh, we were doing because you definitely know it's an acquired taste. And we were definitely, we were also trying to, we weren't, we weren't trying to be liked. We were trying to, like, to, you know, push up against things and, and, uh, you know, honestly, you know, we're kind of obnoxious about it sometimes. So, uh, yeah. I'm not surprised that it wasn't everybody's cup of tea. So let's, so let's stick the next song in there and then we'll come back and talk about Lookout Records because, I mean, man, everybody who was a big fan of that label, it seems like is in their forties and fifties now. And I don't know if they got spare cash and time for nostalgia or what, but man, I see Lookout Records more now than I did 25 years ago, I swear. So let's, uh, what's, what's the next song? G- it is uh, Love, Amer- Love American Style off of, I think that's off Milk Milk Lemonade, right? There Correct. we go. Sounds good. Let's okay. do it. So Love American Style, Miss a T Experience. <laughs>
there love american style um what's the story behind that one well this is another pop culture appropriation yeah i thought so um, i remember but, that show you know, yeah but I didn't uh, watch uh, it, I remember. yeah love love song uh uh, uh a love song that was stepped off from the uh from the uh, TV show. I don't know what more to say about it except that uh, it's just one that I inex- inexplicably, inexplicably, perhaps, particularly like. Uh, and it was a, it was, you know, it was very much not what people in the scene were expecting or particularly wanted to hear. But uh, <laughs> I, that that record, that seven inch, is just a, you know, it's all. It's on the same in the same mode as the Danny Partridge, I suppose. It's like just appropriating, uh, you know, the the TV culture of my when I was growing up uh, for you know for our own purposes. And I think Love American Style makes a pretty uh, uh, good pastiche uh, in service of a love song and. So then there was also on that record, there was a Partridge Family cover and uh, and uh, the cover of the Spider-Man theme song as well. We had a great time doing it, even if it wasn't uh, if it if it didn't present the scene with the, the stuff that they liked best. Wow. It was, it was everything. So you must have grown up with that. Because it says on, I'm looking it up right now and it says the ABC Friday primetime lineup was the Brady Bunch, the Partridge Family, The Odd Couple, and Love American Style. So you had that covered, yeah. man. <laughs> yeah, that was my, uh, that was, I, I didn't have any, I didn't have any friends. <laughs> I, I, didn't have, I was, I was, it was all records. It was all records and uh, TV and, you know, Hobbits. That was, wow. that was my childhood. There Broken Hearts. Yeah. So, so I'm, I suspect that lookout, the lookout, the Halcyon days of Lookout Records is sort of like the Halcyon days of 924 Gilman, where it probably has been lionized and sort of you know idealized over the years. And, and there's no more quintessential you know Lookout band than, than you guys, honestly. So, what, what was what was that experience? I mean, did you feel like you were part of something bigger? Did you feel like you were involved with something special at the time, or was it just not at all? Not, not to, not even slightly. And I would say that, unlike the Gilman scene, uh, the uh, I, when I look back on it, I was missing something at the time because there was something just the the breadth of all of these uh, different uh, all the different sorts of records that they put out, which were, I mean, it was it was so it was all over the map, you yeah. know if you know if you look back on it in a very interesting way and uh and that was really something special and remains so you know if you look if you go and go through the whole catalog you find uh, 300 lots of 300 plus releases lots of surprises and lots of you know phenomenal music so but at the time it was just that I, you know you if you're a band it's not you're you're not uh conducting your career to try to be a brick in the wall of a label's edifice you know it's you're you're out for you're looking out for yourself and you're trying to do the best you can with what you got and i it was an i didn't you know it was their it was it was their job to build the label it was our job to be a to to you know to provide 
this these materials but um uh you know looking back on it i can see uh, that there was something cool about it and something special and something that is was not uh, was was different enough and weird enough in comparison to all the other labels that were going at the time that to as to really stand out. Uh, there wasn't a Lookout Records sound like there was a Fat Records sound, for instance, where a Fat Record record comes out and you pretty much could. Uh, knew already precisely what it would sound like, but you see, I think never... that's kind of a production thing, though, too, with them. I think so, you know, it's like it's a, everyone's no, it's a, produced the exact same way. A, well, that's part of what I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, there it was. That it was very, and that that was a that was a sound commercial strategy because it was a thing people liked. They tried yeah. to match the thing they liked, but Lookout was just all over the place because there was no guiding hand. It was just a bunch of bands, uh, you know, uh, with frankly. Uh, uh, widely varying talents and lack thereof just uh, sort of scrambling together to make a semblance of a record sometimes uh, with uh, sort of these kind of stumbling into greatness uh, that in, in a in a completely off the wall unexpected way so uh, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that sort of thing but at the time it wasn't something that I particularly paid attention to it is funny because yeah you always associate you always think you know you think look out what do you think you think green day you think screeching weasel you think queers you think mr g experience those are the so you think okay that's kind of a it was kind of a pop punk label but yeah there were all those bristly spiky study bands but it was like those were sort of more like local and regional weren't they i mean it was a weird mishmash because they were kind of chronicling the bay area scene and signing these like pop punk bands from all over but yeah it was a yeah, I was I didn't appreciate it until it went away too. Like everybody else, you know, that's yeah. the human condition, right? You can't and really I wasn't, appreciate it until it's gone. I wasn't privy to their to their uh, decisions, <laughs> and <No. laughs> I don't even know. I didn't even really know. I mean, I know from my own corner of it, uh, I wasn't really aware of much uh, decision making that went on. We just were. We just, you know, would uh, give a record and they put it out. Kept, yeah, we we would, and it was. The, the the key to it was low investment, low risk. They mm. never paid very much money for, especially in those early days, uh, uh, never paid very much for any record. Uh, they could sell uh, enough of them to uh, to make it, you know, it, I think if, if they had real budgets for a lot of those records, then they would have crashed and burned very quickly, but that's not mm. how they did it. It was very little outlay and then, you know, uh, just sort of scooping up the money at the end when it started to when after after you know Green Day hit it big and then suddenly there was all you know there these records that cost zero dollars suddenly were selling millions of copies so that was that's the that's the benefit to it but from the point of view of one of the little bands you just you know we would record our twelve hundred dollar album and then you know give them the tape and and you know, figure out the art and then come out and, and it was not the, you go on tour. Uh, it, it was right. It was not, a, it was a, it was a very mundane sort of a, a way to put out records from, from all angles. You so, know, the funny thing is a little band like you, I mean, most modern punk bands would kill to sell what you were selling back in those days. Well, which yeah, was, seemed, it seemed very thing. modest, but you know, that was the golden era of, of physical, physical right. sales. Well, no so, one buys anything now. No. <laughs> did you, did you ever, 
not have to have a job while you're doing mystery to experience? Was there a time where you could make a living touring or not really? Uh, you know, sort of. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the, at the at the height of it, of our activity, mid to late '90s, uh, we were we 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 toured a lot, we played a lot, we you know sold a lot of merchandise, and uh, we would we would come back from these tours with big bags of cash, but mm. we would not always be all that clear on uh, what the expenses were. And in the end, like a lot of enterprises like that, it wound up being more debt than money. Uh, but it for the time when you're not really keeping all that good track of things, it seemed okay. And I quit my job uh, in uh, around... So 90, 94 or so, and uh, and then never got another, never got a job after that. But that's not to say that I was uh, always making a, a comfortable middle class income. In fact, uh, not. <laughs> um, but it was the sort of thing where I just made a decision for various reasons or various factors where I just had to decide was I going to you know, really go do this it. rock and roll thing in a serious way. And if so, uh, I should really do it. And so that was, I, I left the job that I had and with the thought that I would go back to it, uh, with my tail between my legs when I, when yeah, I uh, can't make it in the big city and I come crawling back and then that just never happened. And you, you juggled, uh, debts and, and, and income and expenses for decades, uh, you know, <laughs> semi successfully. So After did you that. did did you actually tour the world or was it mainly U.S. or? What? Yeah, we did we did so we did uh, we had a very full schedule of touring in that period and it was uh, it was you know quite a bit of European shows and a couple of couple or three Japanese tours. Wow. We never made it to Australia. We know we we did make it to Eastern Europe, but never like <laughs> China or or uh russia mm -hmm. per, proper uh we played but um it, it was mostly the u.s and canada we never made it to south america even though we kind of had some feelers out for that uh but it was a lot of shows so what were some of your favorite places in europe to play uh well london was always the most fun okay um for uh for a variety of reasons out, out but other but with that said hey, italy, italy our Italian shows were always the best. The oh, okay. Italian, the, 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 there, I don't know how it happened, but, uh, the Ramones ish punk rock was so loved there that you always had a great time. Plus people are really nice and the food is really great. And yep. just any time spent in Italy is time well spent. So okay. we always had the best, our best times in Italy by far. And there's a lot of good, actually, Italian Ramones core type bands. There, yeah. there sure are. Yeah. yeah. Some very good. Ones. So, so what's, what's the current, I, I, I wanted to double back on one of the, one of the lookout things actually real quick. So you, as of right now, you have all your rights to all your stuff that mm -hmm. you did with lookout. Yeah. So when the label went under, did you just get that back or did you have to hire a lawyer or how did that work? Uh, yeah. They, they just, uh, they just had a Chris Applegren who was in charge of, 
of the label. He was one of the three partners uh, when the and you know Pat and Larry left, basically left him holding the bag, and uh, he continued the label for uh, for good many years and for the best years of our uh, of our uh, career. And we had we had a very good relationship with him, but yeah. he was not the kind of it he was not about trying to gouge anybody and when things when things wound down just as a blanket policy he said yeah we're returning all the um the rights to everything all the tapes and all the stock to the bands and so i suddenly had all these master tapes and all this inventory but it was many years before uh that uh theoretical ownership actually became actual where like right now I've got, I still don't have all the stock uh, in my possession. It's various places, various people's garages and stuff. I don't have a lot of space, but I do have the masters, the, what the ones that exist uh, after you talking years. stock, you talking stock, like CDs and LPs, like yeah, that yeah, they had around left, the warehouse. Leftover, oh, no, I'm kidding. Leftover, look out stock. I do, I do a, I do a, I haven't done one in a couple years now, but I'll do a, a sort of, virtual yard sale of the, of the stock every now and again, if I happen across a, a box or two, uh, I still have, you know, I still have a, a, a supply of LPs that, hmm. um, you know, from the end, some CDs, even some cassettes. Hmm. Cassettes. So, Those are big these days. Yeah. yeah the kids are jumping a load of the cassettes for some reason. Idiot, idiot they, kids. Yep. So, so one more question before we go to the next, before we pop the next song, what's the current, so you, Mr. T experience is probably never going to tour again. Uh, no, we that's not true. But you I mean, we, well, say you do like flying weekends, right? Is that what? Yeah. Or do, do you get in the yeah. band? Yeah, yeah. We, we, I mean, now we don't because of this pandemic thing. Is, yeah, yeah, of you course. Know, and but... I don't, and I don't know what I don't know what the uh, final result is going to be. You know, yeah. what kind of a what kind of a live show uh, world we're going to have when yeah. when things finally start again. But up until started we were playing you know yeah, you we, did, chicago, yeah, we did, like, most last, did like i know you played yeah. chicago i think last year I, I but that's I, I but were you in a van or you just kind of flying no, in no it was of... that's the only way that it was practical uh and yeah as, the answer to the the uh question of whether we're ever gonna climb in a van and drive around the country for eight weeks <laughs> uh hoping that the <laughs> venues that we show up exist and are actually having a show there and getting paid gas money and yeah. getting chased by skinheads and, uh, <laughs> there's not, there's not many skinheads the these days mate. the punk house that's that's not that is not in the cards that's not going to happen but doing shows is something that we you know you 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 adapt to the realities and you know for about after the collapse of the music industry uh there were about 10 years when nobody knew how to do it or how to make it make it work uh for uh bands in our general category and then we were just kind of you know for the for a few years starting in uh, t you know 2014 2015 or so uh we fig figured out a way that it worked for us and we did it and we played you know as much as we could where it made sense where we wouldn't lose money on these these trips sure. And uh, and it was and it was fine, and I fully intended to keep doing that uh, as a sort of a consistent thing. Sure. But then this pandemic thing happened and put everything on hold. So now I don't know. But hopefully, hopefully next year. 
Hopefully next year we can get back to business. All right, what's what's the next song? You know, let's put the next song in there, and then because he, he, you get you working on reissuing your catalog, so I definitely yeah. want to dig into that a little bit. So let's, I can't uh, remember what I I can't remember what I said. More than uh, toast. More, more than, than toast. toast. There you yeah. go. What's, tell us about this song. Uh, well, it was one of the first really good songs that I ever wrote. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's our uh, it, it's a it's it's an it's a kind of a. Uh, uh, slightly out of focus extended metaphor uh for uh where it it kind of uh appropriates the habit of uh of uh of using uh uh using metaphors to express uh sentiments of love and loss uh but you know uh my my theory in constructing those lyrics was that uh it's the action of doing it that makes the has the emotional impact and you can plug almost anything into these uh, this figurative language like say a staple gun or um so forth as in the lyrics it's our most popular song by gauging by the votes that it got when we were trying to determine what was going to go on the mtx forever compilation it's kind of a, a high point of my songwriting career and of our band's recording career so it seems appropriate Okay, All so right. this is more than toast. It's off the album "Our Bodies Ourselves," right? Original album. Yeah, well, yes, and and uh, this this originally the the seven inch called "Gun Crazy." That was its oh, okay. release. Okay, so yeah, Mr. T Experience, more than toast.
there it was, and who doesn't love toast, for God's sakes? That's right. You English and your freaking toast. We love our toast, let me tell you, mate. So, so you're, you're obviously, you know, so you're working with a label out of the East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. Sounds rad. Sounds radical. Yeah, sounds rad. And you're working on, and I, I'm super excited about this, but I, I'm trying to figure out how you're doing it here. So you've done like a double LP greatest hits, essentially. And then you did like a double LP of of EP tracks, which is great because you got so much stuff out there gathering all those together. And now the most recent one you did is And the Women That Love Them, right? Yeah. Which is like kind of in the middle of your catalog, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so, what, so explain to me how you're doing this here. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with with the with, like, with the why, logic of this. With yes. it, so, so why you're not like, kind of doing it chronologically, or, 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 and I'm sure you have a good reason for it. So I do have a good reason for it. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, we, we assembling these masters was a big job, and cataloging yeah. them and understanding them, and uh, once we finally got the uh, the stack of as many of the stereo masters, the, the mixed masters that we of these of these recordings that we could get, we had them uh, restored and transferred, which was a whole other can of worms. And then the reason for doing the MTX Forever was to see what would happen if we took these and made them into a vinyl record, built from all the various different recordings. Um, and it was a good result, but. One of the things that uh, was not a surprise. One of the things we learned was that the uh, there was a a wide variety of uh, of different treatments that these records needed, uh, and the the goal is to release every single thing to reissue the entire universe of these recordings, including seven inches and and all that stuff. I don't know how far we'll get in that project, but that's the idea. So. Uh, as far as why the women who love them was uh, the first one, it was a um, it was a master that already sounded pretty good and didn't need a whole lot of uh, of uh, didn't we didn't need to do a whole lot to it. There was no real question of remixing it, which would have been a whole other can of worms. It's also never was released on vinyl, so uh, that was a a good reason because we're you know we're we're using vinyl as our as the main uh iteration where all the other versions sort of uh step off from that so uh it was just the it was a it was relatively straightforward release and it sounds that the master the mastered version sounds like miles better than the original uh but the original sounded pretty good um the 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 rest of these tapes you know, and the, the, I have some pretty ambitious ideas about some of the uh, other reissues that will take uh, quite a bit more work. So we're starting with, you know, we're gradually testing the waters and starting out with the easy ones and moving to the more complicated ones. Hmm. And it sounds like this but came even, in. A, eventually, the hope is that all the LPs and all the or all the twelve inches and all the LPs will be reissued. That's the idea. Nice. And it sounds like this and the women who love them comes in. It's a pretty special deal, right, on vinyl? Because it's like the yeah. first 300 on silver in a custom shipping box, it says. Yeah, yeah. The boxes are beautiful. That's another sounds radical uh, uh, <laughs> hallmark. Uh, we're trying to make them as beautiful 
and interesting and as special as we can. And, and uh, I'm, you know, Chris Applegren, uh, who designed uh, the artwork for all of the all of the records beginning with that one has been, you know, re re uh, reconstituting his own art. And we got mm. special enhanced versions of it. And and we've been working together on that just like old times, which is really which is really great for me, because that was one of the things I liked best about our our record. Uh, uh, when we put out records that was a, doing working on the art with Chris was a big part of it. Uh, so, yeah, we try to make them as as interesting and special and beautiful and cool <clears throat> as we can. And so far, I believe we've really, uh, with the, with the releases we've done so far, have hit it out of the park. And this is the best one. It's, it's gorgeous and sounds just phenomenal. Uh, if oh. when you finally hear it come out of the speakers, it's like you're hearing a whole new record. So huh. that's, that's cool. Pretty great. It yeah. seems, yeah. It seems well. Like I said, it seems like uh, there's like peak nostalgia, like lookout nostalgia right now. I think the timing on this is really good. I, and your first pressings are pretty much selling out. Just yeah, almost we, instantly. Yeah, well, we have a we have a a system. This uh, Chris from uh, Sounds Radical has. So this... who is who is Chris? Hey, you remind so, me again. I, I don't yeah, know, I he know. used to he used to do insubordination records. Okay, okay. Way back when. So he and uh, he just came to my rescue. With the reason it, it all started very uh, uh, kind of randomly. Uh, he came to my when I wanted to do a, a limited vinyl version of our of the the most recent. Mr. She Experience album uh, that was the soundtrack of my King, King Dork, Dork books, yep. King Dork Approximately the album. It was a digital download with the paperback, uh, cop paperback yep. edition of the books, and I just wanted to do a vinyl version just to have it, and I was having a hard time making that happen. And I asked him uh, for help, and he just like jumped on it and ran with it. And then before I knew it, uh, it was a it was a label, and we we were putting out all all my stuff, and so that's how. That's yeah, I was how gonna say went. like you go on you go on that label like eighty percent of the stuff on there is like Mr. T experience stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but and it's gonna get worse. To it's work. gonna get worse before it gets better. It sounds like that's yeah. good. Yeah. So. Um, oh, the MRFLs yeah, are on there too. Yeah, they who did we, an who, album who we had and, on the show. Yeah. He read. He uh, put out the mopes. I don't yeah, remember the mopes. Yeah, it was like a it was like a queer screeching weasel kind of supergroup. Yeah, so I used the term Dan, loosely. Yeah, Dan, Dan Vappen's Mopes. Um, yeah, Dan and John from Weasel and uh, Baby, our uh, B Face from Queers, and yeah, it was cool. They're they're cool. I saw them play in Chicago, Neil actually at Reggie's a couple years ago. They did yeah. a one off for Red uh, for Jughead's birthday. Right. You uh, you you in touch with any of those guys anymore? Or are you just kind of off in your own little world over there on the West Coast? Well, I've always been in my own little world, but um, <laughs> and and now is is no different, and you know probably even more so, uh, but. You know, I, I our paths cross, uh, and ha, you know, regularly, uh, you know, just depending on circumstances. I mean, we're we're trying to, to we've been, uh, in fact, that the, the, our shows that we were trying to set up in Chicago uh, that got that didn't happen because of the the COVID stuff. That was going to be with uh, with Vapid. Uh, what was that going to be? Was that going to be at Reggie's or something? Uh, I can't remember the venue. I don't think it was okay. Reggie's. It was a, we were. It was a. It was our our uh, uh, 
uh, booking production people were going to run them from. I can't remember what the room was called. It never got much past the uh, the planning stage because of every, okay. all the craziness. So, so Dan Vapp and the Chiefs were going to play that show. Yeah, yeah. We, okay. we we um, you know, I it, I was never I was never great friends with those guys in the way that I would you know I would like my mom would say something mean to me and I would call up Jughead and say, oh, you'll never believe what you just said. And then we'd cry to each other on the phone. That's not the kind of relationship I ever had with any of those no. guys. But we, we always, uh, you know, always, they're, they're good. They're, they're good people. And I, I love Joe. Uh, I've known Joe King for as long as I've known anyone. I love the hell out of him. And I really enjoy when I, when our paths cross, but it's, you know, it's not like we're, we're sure. uh, FaceTiming, you know, every Thursday, <laughs> yeah. that's, it's not that, it's not that kind of thing. I, I guess that's another part of like the idealized sort of, you know, you and Ben and Joe and, you know, all holding hands and, you know, yeah. teaching, teaching the world to sing in perfect harmony or something. But it's almost like, I mean, it, it, it like when uh, we, we played so we did, we played so many shows with the queers, uh, over the years that I almost want to say it was kind of like that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, where there was, there was a, uh, there, there was something special. There was some kind of great uh, synergy oh. with that bill that would, that goes all the way back and continues now. I mean, it's like, it's, it's when it's the, it's the best uh, us in the queers is the, the the best lineup I that we've ever done and that I can ever imagine and and that continues so uh, yeah it's it's a the feel good sensation of the I summer. I think you and Joe are are two guys two peas in a pod not necessarily personality wise because he's obviously Joe's Joe's a character man we had him yeah. on he was a lot it was a lot of fun yeah. but you both are capable of writing you know if you weren't doing a punk band you're both capable of writing traditional pop songs songs that and Joel's issue of course is that he can't write a song that doesn't say fuck 50 times and have the word fits in it <laughs> so he's never going to get on the radio but you know i think in a in a parallel universe i think Mr. T Experience could have been a a a, a pop band you know a yeah. a, a bubblegum band and the well, reason i say uh, that we were it was not 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 for want of trying but it, but well, it didn't it's, happen but it's funny with COVID, you know, you talk about COVID. So, you know, COVID found my, me sitting around with my wife and my kids, like putting together puzzles in the middle of Wednesday afternoon because we were all home. And it came to my attention how few records I have that my wife doesn't hate. And, <laughs> and it makes me want to get the entire Mr. T Experience catalog back on vinyl because my wife doesn't dislike your band. I think she might oh, actually like is, it a little bit. There you go, man. Really? That's high praise oh, that's right there. <laughs> well, uh, well, well, listen. Guess... It, it, it's 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 if we get locked down again, I'm gonna need some good jams that I can stand and that my wife doesn't want to murder me for. Because I do like to listen to MDC at home for fun, but that does not go over big with the family. Mm. So interesting. Anyway. Well, I yeah, and interesting. Chance, <laughs> exactly. I like the whole. I like the whole spectrum. The whole spectrum of punk rock. So, mm -hmm. um, so damn it! I had a train of thought there and I lost it, Neil. I lost it. Let's uh, so you. Oh, you want to let's talk about the book a little bit. That's interesting because you've written you you wrote King Dork. Is that have, have you done just the one or have you done multiple books? There's so there's there I <clears throat> I have three published novels: King Dork, Andromeda Klein, and the sequel to King Dork, King Dork oh, yeah. Approximately. Okay. So the King Dork is like a high school, like about a high school kid, right? Is it kind of a yeah. sort of biographical? Not really. It's a <clears throat> it's it's a it's it's a, 
you know, it's a novel. It's a fictional character, uh, fictional um, uh, scenario and events uh, informed by my own uh, sort of thoughts and feelings and experiences like any novel would be. Uh, and it was that that was the thing that I did when uh, when music as a as a business was suddenly no longer viable. Um, I was I'm, I'm lucky that that I had something to do because I really didn't know. I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Uh, you could in, be a uh, fake doctor. Well, yeah, I could have. I, I, I think that's not legal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like a band. Uh, if, if, I been, if I had been caught, this would be a very different kind of interview. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> from jail like dentistry GM. dentistry without a license um, dentistry but yeah so uh and then i always had the idea of kind of trying to join the two uh things you know the 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 songwriting the rock and roll recording on one on one side and the the literature on the other side and combine them into a uh complementary uh you know art project and that the the result was king dork approximately the album uh which was something i wanted to do all the way back when i started but never could pull the resources together to make it happen and then just some luckily sort of last ditch effort kind of clicked and that's why we ended up with the the album that we ended up and that was the first mr t experience material and i know you did a solo album too right but that was the first uh, Mr. T experience material in what, like ten years, right? Since, since, uh, yeah. So that was uh, two thousand. Well, the 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 album, the the I think it was twenty sixteen, that the uh, that the the paperback with the download came out in twenty seventeen. The vinyl one was uh, was issued, if I have the dates right. And the previous MTX record was Yesterday Rules in two thousand four. So twelve years. Do you do you are you are you interested in making new mr t experience music or are you yeah. just sort of working on the reissues right now well i mean the reissues it, it, it's not a really good situation for uh for in our situation for you know recording stuff right now sure um but i uh, i definitely i mean there's a it's a funding uh whole album is a challenging thing in this day and sure. age and i still don't really quite know how to do that but if mm. that gets uh solved in whatever way then I, I i've got a whole i've got a whole album planned uh it, you know I, I uh have the songs i have been you know kind of uh gradually bit by bit putting the conceptual version of it together for years and years and years so when there's a chance i do want to do it i hope it happens mm. uh but you know i the, that said uh this is something that i'm sure i'm not the only person with this perspective but uh as far as the world of uh whatever is left of of the of you know a record buying public a commercial uh uh, uh, process commercial dynamic in <clears throat> the recording and releasing of rock recordings. Uh, no one's interested in the new stuff. Oh, and dear. you get not, not the, American, not American audiences. No, you. It's the uh, it and I. It's you do it. I would want to do it for its own sake. 
But, you know, I when when I put out records, when we reissue records from the 90s, people care. So, well, and now it's happened. You don't have to. Yeah, you don't have to spend all the money to record them. I mean, you know, they're they're financially viable. I mean, even if it's not a huge profit thing, you know, you're selling. You know, you pr- you press them, they will sell. You found that with your, yeah. you know, the the, the ones you've done so far. Yeah, I mean, it does it does involve quite a bit of of expense to set them up, and one that one of the things that is and and to organize them, especially if you do it carefully, well, and properly. Yeah. Um, so there's a quick and dirty way to to do vinyl reissues as well, but we're yeah, we've not heard doing, those. <clears throat> we're not doing that. Uh, so, but and then the other thing is that because it's it's a it's a kind of boutique collectible sort of a business, uh, the scale is not large enough where uh, it's not it's just not the same as uh, you know you you do these limited pressings that the people that like them really really like them and it's great and you can sell them but you're it part of the appeal to them is their limitedness so yeah. uh you're not gonna you're not gonna sell uh you know thirty thousand copies of anything now, uh, yeah. nowadays which is so it, it has to be done for its own sake and as a as a in the aggregate it kind of is a a tide that hopefully you know lifts the the other projects with it um that's at least that's the theory and i mean i'm trying not to uh i I think the thing that i'm focusing on more is that it's interesting and fun and worthwhile in sort of a general way of you know uh preserving the legacy so to speak such as it is Mm -hmm. Uh, and i'm just focusing on that and seeing how far i can go before trying to do a forensic analysis of whether well was it really worth it because uh we won't know till the dust settles and that's quite a long way away till all that dust settles because there's so much so much of this material hmm. so, so let's was, uh oh, I was, oh no, sorry no i was just going to ask him about about writing the book um was that something you'd always wanted to do had you always seen yourself as writing a novel or was that just something no that's, that was it was suggested to me by a literary agent huh. who was a who was a fan of my songs going back to when he was a kid and he grew up and became a literary agent and his pitch to me was if you could write a, a novel with the some of the same sensibilities as some of these songs then I bet I could sell it and I was skeptical but he turned out to be right so I just uh, gave it a shot because my my uh, the music industry had crashed and burned mm-hmm. at taking my band and my label down with it i really didn't know what to do so i uh, i gave it a try and it, it turned out to uh, i mean in in terms of uh of yeah, i don't know uh prominence and sales and everything it eclipsed uh anything i'd done uh with music oh wow, uh, that's crazy sure so yeah um so there was a it was a good thing it was one of those case of being right place right time it was it made a made quite a big splash that the first book king dork very hard sophomore slump uh situation definitely set in very hard to follow it up but uh the so yeah um so are you was, open to doing another one then oh yeah i'm working on i'm working on on uh on more but i'm uh, doing it uh it's, it takes a long time to write a book it's really sure. hard it's harder than just about anything else that harder I could, than a three-minute song done. huh yeah it is 
<laughs> All right, let's go. Let's put the next song in, Neil. Where are we at? Where Talking are we at, about Neil? three minute songs. Um, Population yes. Us, I believe, is the you know next what? Song. I, I, so, like, I was I was just like randomly thinking of songs, but okay. you know, if we're going to call an audible, up, he's going to call yeah. an audible. That's all right. We can do that. If we're yeah, if we're if we're trying to sum up my band, uh, I realize that I did, I left out the 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 all the records that people like. And, <laughs> I was gonna say no which, love is dead. No love Don't is dead. Even I, Hitler had a girlfriend. I didn't, Nothing I like didn't that. realize how this was going. So uh, why uh, let's? I'm gonna say that I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, make an executive decision here and replace Population Us, which Population Us is from my solo album, and it's probably my best song, like Quay song that I've I've written. But I'm gonna replace it with Sackcloth and Ashes because oh, that may be the most representative. Of the of that era of my songwriting and of my band, so uh, maybe old people uh, won't be so disappointed having listened to an hour <laughs> and a half of this that they didn't get and it, they didn't get to the good stuff. That's all right. I think I only have two. I only I th- when we come back. So we'll play. So we're gonna do sackcloth and ashes, a great, great classic song. I'm sorry. Let's let's do it. Let's roll it. Let's roll it, Neil. Sackcloth okay. and ashes. Sackcloth oh, and ashes. You heard it here first. You heard the man. So sackcloth first, and ashes, Mr. T experience.
There was Sackcloth and Ashes off of the album Love Is Dead. Right. So, so you spent you've spent thirty plus years now singing songs about being brokenhearted. Did you ever settle down? Are you happily married? Do you have a wife Jeez. and kids? Or are you are you still a single guy? Or is that yeah. too personal? If it's too personal, tell me to piss off. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. No. No kids. Um, uh, I, I've 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 got a good wife uh, that I'm uh, very uh, is very. Uh, it's a it's a it's it's going great. Um, That's awesome. So, so does that make does that make it harder to write songs about getting your heart ripped out of your chest? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, no. Does it make it hard it, to sing you, those songs? <laughs> no, it doesn't make it hard to sing the songs. The, 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 there's a, it's a it's a my my relationship with with my songs is not as uh, as kind of clear cut and simple as that. They are. Um, Although, like the books, although they're informed by my thoughts, yeah. feelings, and experiences. They are, uh, you know, essentially works of fiction to a large degree. They're uh, first-person narratives of, of characters, although there are consistent character types that run through a lot of these songs. And the thing that it is interesting to me about writing the songs is figuring out a way to uh, take this conventional uh, material of the, the love song or the breakup song or, you know, whatever you want to call it, which is very much, it's a, I mean, if you, if you look through the, the whole panorama, uh, took a panoramic view of all the songs in the history of, of uh, popular music, they're almost all like that. There's a reason yeah. for it. It's the yeah. it's it's a thing that everybody Universal can experience. understand and yeah. relate to. So I try to figure out a way to make this to to present this traditional material in a way that justifies its existence by not being like all the other ones, which is yeah. kind of a challenging thing to do because there's so many so many out there and so many great ones. So this is that that's the that's the the that's where the uh, that's the challenge and where the, the kind of intellectual um, uh, interest comes from. And that's where the emotional interest comes from, too, because you're animating a narrator that's trying to uh, do like through a quirky back end angle to get to a universal experience. That's why I do it. And when you sing it, you're trying to get the song across. I am not, generally speaking, singing these songs to like get my feelings out so i don't punch <laughs> something or whatever it is that you're not that, early emo you're not emo yeah i mean I'm, <laughs> it's like there no i'm not this is this is a very much a it's very much a it's a there's it's a you know it's artifice it's uh i think that it's something once i figured out the thing i was good at to the degree that i was good at anything once i figured out that that was the thing i was good at then i you know started focusing on that and I get a lot of satisfaction from doing it well, but it's not, it's not like, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Lieber and Stoller used to say they used to break up with their girlfriends so that they would have a thing to write a song about the, that following weekend. That's never been a, uh, that's never been a, I've never been in that mode. Um, uh, the, the, it is, I'm not, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a matter of having a, like a mature settled life so much where they don't have that. I'm, I'm, I'm rather immature actually, but uh, the, it's more a matter of the, the, the more you have done something and the better you get at it, uh, the more challenging it is to figure out a way to, to 
to keep doing it and to keep it alive, to keep the spark alive. You know, I will think so. It's like, will I ever be able to write another love song? I've written all of these mm-hmm. uh, quirky, ironic kind of, uh, sure. uh, you know, You've approach weird... it from every angle. You yeah. know, it would so, seem every then, angle there's to approach it. Right. And that's where you, you, you sort of maybe run out of inspiration. That's the worry is that you run out of inspiration. And in fact, I think that and then, uh, you know, inevitably another one will pop up and it all all that all that has to happen for that for for one to pop up. It's not going through a traumatic experience that you must write about, at least not for me. I'm not that kind of writer. It's an interesting conceit that I think, well, how do you how how do I make that into a song? Mm. Can it be done? And then you try and then the uh, the the measure of of uh, of how satisfying it is you know whether you can succeed in making that uh Hmm. making that a reality well pete shelley was doing that right up to his death and that's interesting because he'd been happily married for years and uh and pete shelley was still doing it so yeah much in much the same way Hmm. so yeah that's pretty cool yeah good okay no, I was going to say, I have one more little rabbit hole I'd like to go down, and then I will let you, okay. we will let you get back to your life, unless Neil's got something else. I actually, but, I actually, I actually do, just because I was looking on Discogs, and yep, okay. tell me about, so I was looking at a 7-inch single from 1990, Sex Offender, and that looks like it's the Blondie cover, correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, and, they, and it says that Debbie Harry sang on it? How was that? Uh, no, it, uh, we just, we... It, I don't think. Does it say that on Discord? It says it's, uh, it's, it says Debbie Harry backing vocals. Uh, <laughs> is that all right? Um, I don't know if we put that on the on the record. Maybe if, <laughs> if we did, maybe if we put it on the on the text, that was a joke. Um, we we we, we unser- it's kind of like with the Danny Partridge song. We unceremoniously and without thinking too much about it, sampled the intro of Ooh, the Blondie okay. song. <laughs> so it's like you hear it and you think it's going to be the Blondie song, and then our uh, very different version uh, comes on. I, I we're we're re we're we're remastering and uh, reissuing that on a B sides compilation, a singles B sides compilation coming up, and mm-hmm. we had to we had to leave that part off. Just yeah, Danny, sure. the Danny Partridge debacle uh, taught us a lesson. <laughs> um, I I still haven't ruled out the. The idea that maybe we could find some kind of weird fly-by-night or underground Croatian <laughs> pressing plant where we might be able to do a secret limited uh, version of these there things with the with the samples still on because it's funny, um, and uh, yeah, so that's a that's a story of that one. Okay. We, we've talked about that, Neil. How like in the '80s, like these hardcore bands would would like take a pop hit from the 70s and just bastardize it and change the title a little bit on the record and i'm pretty sure none of them ever paid royalties on any of that stuff you look at the vandals like did heartbreak hotel right and then when they went to reissue peace through vandalism you notice it's not there yeah i don't think they ever because they, they called it hb hotel and they never really i don't think they ever really acknowledge it but okay i, I, I want to double back one more time really quick to gilman street just because i'm probably never going to have this chance to ask you again so mm-hmm. the pol- the politics of it. So a lot of the bands that used to play there, like would nine twenty four Gilman even let Screeching Weasel or the Queers play there anymore? I mean, they've gotten so ideologically sort of had this level of insane PC purity where I think the Dwarves and the Screeching Weasel and the Queers probably can't even play there anymore. Am I wrong about that? Uh, you'd have to ask someone who's more involved in what it is like now. I know that that uh, I mean I mean you know they they could never. There's not enough money in the world that 
would uh, that uh, would would pay for Screeching Weasel to play there. I know that. Yeah, um, they only play big I know that we we had talked about trying to have the to do something with the queers there as a sort of a stunt. And I'm not. I mean, I don't think I don't know how how into it Joe was, but we have we have the same booking agent um, uh, at that time, and so we had talked about doing it. Um, I think it's not quite. My impression is it's not quite as uh, as hidebound to that extreme degree as you're saying, but there's definitely a kernel of truth mm. there. And there's also, I mean, it's a, there will be surprising bands on their bills sometimes that, I, but that this is the thing that you also have to understand about Berkeley uh, going all the way back to when Berkeley was Berkeley is uh, the usual state of affairs is uh, person A does something, then there's a big protest about it. And then, uh, you know, it, it then the, the aftermath of the protest determined whether it happens. They, they protest everything and Gilman is no different. <laughs> so I'm sure that there would be a protest, whether it would prevent the band from playing. I'm not up on things enough to know. Uh, I know that there were some, I remember back in the day, which is, you know, that's the only thing I can speak to because that was when I was involved in it. I know there were some painful like group kind of struggle sessions uh, where bands had to defend themselves for some sins that they had done. Oh, that was just very, very hard. I mean, I, I yeah, I count me out at that point. So I'm guessing the Dickies yeah, couldn't play like, there either, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't I, think I, we're going to get an anti nowhere league mentors double bill <laughs> at this point. <laughs> you know, uh, but the, I mean, that's that's a funny thing because I know a lot of the people who uh, who are involved in Gilman quite like a lot of that music and sure. did then and do now. So, uh, and, and sometimes, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the stride and see sometimes it's weirdly, uh, um, kind of the, you know, lets things through that you would be surprised at. But then again, if there's a petition or a protest or whatever, then that has to be dealt with. And I think a lot of the things Sounds with, like hell with, on earth, doesn't you? It does. It really does. Well, with protest culture, you know, a lot of it is not even, it's just, you make the, the cost of entry so difficult and annoying that, that, yeah. it, that, that just, that people stop trying. And that's not a great, uh, I'm not talking about Gilman in particular. I'm just talking about in general, you know, the, right. the, the 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 version that dynamic that version of organizing society where you just have everyone protesting everyone else and deterring everyone from, and then see what is left standing um, as not so is not so great. But uh, I don't personally have the uh, the patience uh, for it, and also like I, I don't care that much so. I'm not a good candidate to be protested, I suppose, at least uh, knock on wood. So let's avoid <laughs> let's avoid the political rant about Berkeley because the fact of the matter well, the fact of the matter is Berkeley is like this was like the students for democratic society and they definitely were like a communist group. But they, they were free speech, man. They believed in free speech. The modern movement does not does not really want to hear from their opposing opinions. But anyway, it no. a, it's a funny thing that happened yeah. to the to, yeah, the, to the, the left wing in this country that's it is sure. it is so let so last last but not least unless like i said i, I want to talk a little bit about the ramones because i've been yeah i was gonna i was gonna bring that up i was gonna ask a normal two questions we, we always, anybody who's been around for a certain amount of years and you obviously did the entire road to ruin album in 97 98 was it 98 98 yeah um so 
What? How did that come about? Did, did did you volunteer? Did Clearview approach you, or how how did you guys end up doing Road to Ruin? Yeah, just that guy, that uh, Clearview guy, was doing these those uh, yep. that those records, and he called Capital us up and out. he said he said I have a proposal for you, Road to Ruin, and uh, I said uh, that I mean I I thought I th- I thought it was kind of a stupid idea. But everybody we, we've asked about this said that. Joe said the same thing. I think everybody <laughs> we've asked said seems like a stupid idea. Well, we needed yeah, something to sell, they said. <laughs> we we just they I mean it was just I mean I the the guy the, the band member that really wanted to do it really was really into that that thing was our drummer Jim at the time. And it was I, I maybe if he hadn't been so enthusiastic we might not have ever gotten around to doing it, but we did a uh, we had a you know very small budget, but it was enough to record it. And uh, in a uh, we did it on ADATs at this guy's uh, uh, sort of basement studio. And we, you know, I, it's not it's not great. It's not you know is it, you can do, what are you going to do like you know the Ramones albums better, with, right? worse, with worse vocals basically. <laughs> and uh, they um, uh, but we you know we did to the degree that we could afford it. We kind of sh- slightly jazzed it up a little bit or, you know, made it, uh, put our very around the edges. We couldn't, you know, there wasn't enough time or money to really do any, uh, or, or commitment to it, to, to, uh, to do anything more than the little kind of things we do. We have Penelope Houston sing on one of the bits oh. and we, uh, and I did, I think I did one of the songs that is an acoustic song. It's, it's all kind of shrouded in history by now, but, uh, that was the guy just called us and and uh, I guess we were next on the list after the queers. So, so did That's did did you did you know any of the Ramones? Did you play? Did with you them? play with the Ramones? Do you have a no. do you have a Ramones story? No, no. I mean, I um I I met uh, I saw the Ramones all the time when I was a kid. They were sure. I, I I uh, I and I loved those shows. Uh, I met just just to say hello i met joey ramone once mm. at the bar above coney island high uh and uh, i wasn't in i wasn't there for the, the i just because i was at the bar just getting a drink but then when it became uh uh known that he was up there uh my bandmate joel went up and gave him a copy of our cd uh, love is dead, and mm. the story was that he said, oh, "Love is dead," which is funny. But I so <laughs> I unfortunately I wasn't in on that, so that's Joel's anecdote. But I so I did I, I did meet him just to say hello. But no, I didn't know those guys in any. Uh, uh, and and uh, you know, uh, uh, the I mean, I, I've my path passive cross with with Richie Ramone a few times mm. over the years, but um, he, barely, he barely counts. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know, they, they were, a, they were, uh, you know, a different generation yeah, and a different definitely. level of show business and different in every way. And we didn't, obviously, I mean, it, we didn't move in the same circles or anything, but, sure. oh, the, the, cl- we happened to play in a club where the bar upstairs had Joey Ramone in it once. That's the closest we came. Mm, okay. To oh, that's. You know, Fresh with Ramones. That's closer than I ever got. So let's let's ask, let's ask him the uh, the classic Johnny question then. 
Biggest what? influence in punk rock? Johnny Ramone. Oh, that's right. Neil's Johnny new Ramone. Favorite question. Yeah, it that's is my right. new favorite question. Johnny Ramone, Johnny so, Rotten, or Johnny Thunders? Well, Johnny Thunders meant more to me, much more to me uh, personally. Interesting. Uh, um, uh, but then, then, then practically any uh, gu- uh, guitar player in in, uh, in the in the punk rock world. Uh, uh, but I mean, I I suppose you'd got to say that that Johnny Ramone was more uh, set the uh, was the. You know, created the palimpsest, the 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 mold that uh, that everyone else followed in for sure, and uh, you know you and it's a good it, you you got to start with minimalism and build on that. That's a good way to start. So uh, that's the answer to the question. But if I had um, if I had a uh, if if I was I don't know. There's no right answer, wrong Johnny answers. Johnny Thunders, come on. Go, no, no, go, go Johnny Thunders. If I was sitting alone and, and morose and sort of uh, feeling sorry for myself of a, on, a, on a Saturday night and I was choosing the, the music that I would listen to, it would be the Johnny Thunders discography uh, easily would win over... You're not over listening to Nevermind the Bullocks when you're feeling blue? <laughs> no, I, I, though I love though I love the sound of, of, of course of that recording. Obviously, every, every great every great American does. Yeah. So, so <laughs> do we a, do we have another? Do we have one last song? We do. do we we have fucked up uh, on life, which I think is a good one to go out on. Unless he wants, yeah. to, unless so you want to change it up. No, no, that, that's what I, I thought. I was we were going chronologically, and so I figured that that was our that was you know towards the end of the lookout uh, trajectory. That was the last. And Mr. T Experience Lookout record, um, and I think that's one of those songs that uh, that just works. Okay, well, let's let's play that, and then we'll come back and and wrap it up real quick. Sounds good. Okay, so fucked up on life, Mr. T Experience. I don't have many friends. Just some pretty loose and dead ends. Even one can be a bit much for me. And they call me, but I never end up calling them back. They lose patience as I lose track. I don't care anymore if I ever did before. But I'm not really paying attention. I say what reflects well on them. Everyone's lying like rocks. Never know what should be done. I don't bother from the only one. I stay out of the fray. I figure I do less damage that way. I'm outstanding in my field, and all I ever want to do is just get proud.
There you go. MTX. Final one for tonight. Today. So, wherever you listen so any, to this. Any final parting words of wisdom, <laughs> Dr. Frank? If... You know, I don't really have. Yeah, you do. Uh, have a good time any... all the time. That's I'm just, you know, I was, I was, I, I was asked, um, I, I can't even remember. I was asked by a, by a, a drunk girl uh, that I ran into a few months back um, to if if I could say my uh, political philosophy in under six words, and my answer was that she couldn't hear, and I had to say it like seven times before she <laughs> is. And, but I think this is pretty good advice, and I think we'd be better off if everybody followed it. Live and let live, and you know, don't hassle anybody about anything. And uh, that's more than six words, but that is good advice. Well, live and let live was what I said to her. There you go. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Like the great Paul McCartney said, right? Even though I, <laughs> I still like have a good time all the time. But there I was you go. let die. Yeah. Ah, whatever. Either way. But hey, I think for... the key to having a good time is is uh, leaving everybody, leaving each other alone. Hey man, there if someone go. from and... Spinal Tap says it, that's it's good enough for yeah. me. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> But, but thanks well, for coming hey, on. Thanks, this a, has been an interesting conversation. I appreciate it. No, it's been it. a real pleasure. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Honestly, like I said, I've, I've got this weird. Uh, I've been able to talk to so many people from the '90s that were favorites of mine. It's it's amazing, and it's it's kind of. I think it's because nobody can tour, so everybody's sort of willing to you know slum and come talk to us. But man, it was <laughs> it was, it was a great, it was a great conversation. And we appreciate it. Yeah, and I do. hope you do get that Chicago show in because Neil and I will come visit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, it'll like, happen. It'll be like, like, hey, remember no. that? Remember that? Remember those guys you talked to for like an hour and forty-five minutes on the podcast? And you'd be like, nah, it doesn't ring a bell. Nah. <laughs> uh, I think I'll remember this one for a while. Oh, wow. Good, man. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. Thanks, hey, man. Thanks. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks a lot. Hey, good luck with the reissues. And like I said, I hope we get back on the road soon and all that stuff. So, thanks a lot. Thanks yeah. for the music. All right. So uh, stay free, everybody out there. Keep a little mark in your heart.